Hey everyone, this is That Guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to That Podcast in Hutch. Today I have uh, Representative Jim Gartner with me, and uh, there's a really specific reason I wanted to bring him in. There, there could be a lot of reasons I'd want to talk with him, but today we're going to talk about a bill he's introduced. I believe that's coming before the Agriculture Committee, according to my chairman in, in Ag today. Um, that we'll be taking that up. Good. But this bill has to do with the ornate box turtle. So, Jim, thanks for coming on and talking to me about your, your legislation today. Thanks, Jason. Good to be here. So, the, the reason, one of the things I thought when uh, you first raised this uh, issue uh, was that people who don't know the legislation, don't look at it, if they just read the news reports, they're going to see, oh, there's this bill that says you can't possess an ornate box turtle. But with as, as it's is the case with a lot of things in the building. There's usually a, a bigger story behind something, even if it's a seemingly simple piece of legislation. So tell me a little bit about the ornate box turtle and why you have legislation uh, to basically protect the ornate box turtle. Thanks, Jason. Well, number one, the ornate box turtle is the state reptile and uh, so I, I had really even forgotten that the ornate box turtle was a state reptile. But uh, one day a friend of mine uh, mentioned to me that she had been to the Topeka Zoo and a biologist over there was giving a presentation, not on turtles, on something else. But I guess in their conversation, he mentioned that the ornate box turtle was in jeopardy. And so she asked a couple of questions, what do you mean? And uh, he sort of explained what the situation has been or what's been going on. And uh, it just so happens that weekend I saw her and she uh, mentioned it to me that, did you know that what's going on with the ornate box turtle? And I said, no, I have no clue. She filled me in and said, you know, what we need is a bill to take care of this issue. And uh, of course, I gave it some thought. And the first thing I wanted to do is call the gentleman, a biologist. I believe he's a biologist at the Topeka Zoo and get more information. Explain to me what's going on. So I did. And he was totally surprised that I called him within you know, a few days of having mentioned this to my friend. And uh, I asked him, you know, what in particular, well, what's going on with the, the box turtle? And he said there, there was a regulation under wildlife and parks that had been in effect for a number of years that basically stipulates that if you have a a license, either, I assume, fishing or hunting license, that you can possess up to five ornate box turtles at a time. And, of course, I followed up with, well, number one, I asked him, why, what would they do with five ornate box turtles? And he said, well, it's an old regulation, and I, I don't know why it was written originally, but said what's happened lately, they know 
uh, foreign fact that in Asia, there's a real demand for different looking turtles. And of course, as everybody knows, with the ornate box turtle, you'll either have yellow markings uh-huh. or sometimes they'll be orange that I've read about. I, I've in, in my lifetime, I've only seen yellow markings. But there over in Asia, there's quite a market for turtles that have these distinguishing marks Mm -hmm. that are different than all the turtles they see over there. And I guess a number of Asians have very nice gardens. And so what's happening, we suspect what's happening, is that people are collecting ornate box turtles in Kansas, and they're selling them and shipping them overseas to Asia. Now, the biologist told me that they are getting, in some cases, up to $1,000 a piece. For a, for a box turtle? For a box turtle. And, of course, after he told me this, I just went ballistic and said, there is no reason to allow these people to sell and ship our ornate box turtles, our state reptile, overseas. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. And uh, so we went on, and I asked him specifically, how do we take care of this? Do we have to follow Bill? Can we go in and change the regulations? Mm -hmm. He did some uh, groundwork, contacted Wildlife and Parks, and specifically talked about the regulation that would need to be changed. But as you know, Jason, to change the regulation up here can take up to two years yeah. by the time it goes through the whole process. Yeah. And so uh, we pivoted from that option to let's just file a bill. Yeah. Let's just say people can't possess ornate box turtles, period. Uh, in statute today, we have a couple. We have, uh, I believe there's a couple turtles that already uh, they cannot possess, people can't possess, fishing, hunting license or not. And uh, so we went in, I advised him to go to the uh, revisor statutes. He sat down and now we have a very simple one-line bill, it's House Bill 2479, that basically says you cannot possess an ornate box turtle. Now, let me just say one other thing. Possess is a pretty encompassing word. Yeah. And I know people are going to say, well, what if my daughter, Betty, comes home, finds an ornate box turtle, and keeps it for a day or two or takes it to show and tell at school in a box uh, and then comes home and lets it go back into the wild. That's no problem. People are not going to be, uh, they're not going to call the police or uh, come and break your door down to get the ornate box. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Uh, but that's so some people might get a little uh, out of sort when, you know, possession, the, the possess word is in the bill. But we're just trying to keep it as simple as possible. 
Well, that's one of the things that was really fascinating to me about the the bill because I, I expect that if people didn't know the story and they just saw it on the outside, they'd think, well, why in the world are we creating legislation to say you can't have a turtle? Uh, and one, you know, it seems, you know, like kind of re- unnecessary. But you, through your conversations and your, your research on this is where you found out there's kind of this underground market or this black market trading where people are getting a lot of money for box turtles exactly. or not box turtles. And, uh, and, that, and that makes that necessary so that we're not basically trafficking wildlife to, to other parts of the world because it's kind of a collector's item. Right, exactly. And there is another reason, though, there, the, that really uh, spurred my interest is that they've suspected that the biologists have suspected that the ornate box turtles have been, numbers have been decreasing. Okay. So they, uh, I believe three years ago, they, with uh, the biologist here in Topeka, working with other zoos, uh, biologists at other zoos around Kansas, have put together a study. And I believe, don't quote me on this, I believe they're looking at different geographic areas of the states, and they're trying to go out and actually count the number of ornate box turtles they see in a given period of time. Okay. And uh, that that was going to be, well, it still is going to be a four-year study, but last year they had to put it on hold because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So that might come up in the discussion, well, what what is your survey showing? They they already know the numbers are down. Yeah. By how much they don't know exactly and won't know until they complete this study, which will be in 2022. Okay. Uh, this year, sometime I'm guessing more, probably closer to the fall. But they know for a fact the numbers are dwindling because. Uh, he said specifically the biologist to me. It used to be you could go out. In, on farmland, mm-hmm. uh, in grassy areas, and you could stand there or just walk around, and you could count yeah. the box turtles. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't occur anymore. And and do they think, or did you have some indication that they think this tra- this trade or this market for box turtles is part of the reason for uh, that? Exactly. Okay. It, it is part. Now they're not sure uh, how great. Uh, that is a part of the diminish, diminishing numbers. Uh, it might have to do with habitat. It might do, you know, environmentally with other items. But uh, until they get the numbers, we really won't know on uh, that. But, uh, you know, in my opinion, uh, I want to save the turtle here in Kansas. I don't want to be shipped overseas for any reason. So that's why... We, I decided to move ahead with this legislation this year. So when you heard that happened, um, were you surprised? I mean, as surprised as I was when you told totally. me, I guess. It just doesn't. And I guess one of the things that well, you and I talked about this a little bit that I always find interesting about this job is that you learn about things like that from talking to people, from people who are experts in a, in a field. 
Um, and you'd never know about them otherwise. Like there, there'd be no reason for any of us to know anything about the illegal trafficking of ornate box turtles unless we had a conversation with someone who's in that field who knows exactly. what's going on. And then we get to convert that into some sort of legislation that might prevent that from happening. Right, right, exactly. Now, I think we talked a little bit earlier, you said that there's an interesting story on how the box turtle became the, the state reptile. You said that that goes back quite a ways, doesn't it? Uh, you know, I was totally surprised because I looked it up uh, a couple days ago uh, just to see how it became the state reptile. And evidently, a bunch of, well, a sixth grade class from Caldwell, Kansas, uh, were looking, I guess, at the ornate box turtle and decided in their class, why shouldn't it be the state reptile? And so they pushed or brought a bill, had their legislator, I assume, mm-hmm. file a bill to uh, classify the ornate box turtle as the state reptile. And they pushed it and it, it uh, passed in 1986. And uh, Governor Carlin signed it into law. So, uh, and that's, that's how state that, reptile. That, that, that's how the state reptile became into being. I guess. <laughs> and if I if if I remember right, that kind of students driving some of those things. That that's the way a lot of things have become. I think there was a conversation about the state dance a few years ago. State dance. The state uh, rock. Right. At one uh, point. And, and we've had a number, since I've been here, we've had uh, classes come up and push a particular issue, which I think is great, but a great learning experience for them. Yeah, it always ends up very well, right? Because they, they get to experience the process of right. legislation and you have a group of kids that right. go back and say, hey, we actually got something done. And right. Yeah, maybe we'd have better luck with our legislation if we were young and, and adorable. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, but maybe, maybe we'd have a little higher probability of success. But it's, it's hard to say no to kids, though, when oh, they I tell you they really is. want something. Yeah, it it. Is. But, you know, I didn't know that uh, we have like 14 different species of turtles uh, in Kansas. I had no clue we had that many. Uh, and uh, the ornate box turtle, basically, I don't know what they call, uh, you know, a carnivorous or, you know, carnivore they'll eat just about anything i mean from i i read where they'll eat meat mm-hmm. but they'll eat vegetables uh, grass bugs uh, grasshoppers they have quite quite a uh, diversified menu and uh, they live this is uh, interesting it sort of contradicts one another i read one place they live from 30 to 50 years is the average lifespan. And then another article I read, it said they live from 50 to 100 years. So I, who knows? Let's split the difference yeah. and say 50 years. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting subject. Yeah, so you really dived into this, didn't you? I mean, once well, you started I just working, thought I you got interested to know right? a little bit more about the ornate box turtle. Well, if you're gonna if you're gonna stand in defense of the box turtle, you might. Well, I'm gonna bring the biologist, the expert. Uh, hopefully, this bill is going to be heard maybe next week uh, in uh, House Agriculture Committee, and 
I've already contacted the biologist, and he's going to reach out and have some of his uh, other zoo biologists come in and make a case that we need to protect uh, the numbers, basically, because I think right now it's sort of in a middle, you know, you have extinct on one end and Mm -hmm. just, you know, they're everywhere on the other. And I think right now they're sort of in the middle tending to go towards the extinct or uh, um, just... In, and we just kind of want to hold the line we on We want that, to hold right? the line, yeah. yeah. Make sure that they're they're still around, especially right. being our state turtle. Right. Um, well, one of, the, one of the things, I mean, we talked about a little bit, it's just, it's interesting that this all just came out of a conversation, right? And, and this, the box turtle's a little bit out of what you normally deal in, right? <laughs> Your normal committees are, let me see, you're, you're on tax, uh, utilities ranking on tax i'm on utilities and i'm on agricultural agriculture and natural resources budget committee yeah so this isn't you, this isn't the sort of thing you're usually dealing in you're usually heavily involved in tax and utility policy but not exactly. so much with box turtles um, but it really speaks to the i guess the nature of a representative government or a citizen legislature sure. where this this is all born out of a conversation that somebody that you had with somebody who had a conversation with someone else and you start to learn about a topic right and realize that and the topeka zoo is actually in my district okay so it's uh so i had i had a real interest in in finding out more uh about the issue and then trying to help yeah well that's that's incredible um and I just, it just amazes me that I know that's why I wanted to have you come on and, and I'll let everybody in, at home know. When I talked to Jim about coming on, he's like, oh, nobody's going to care about that. But I'm convinced that people will because I just think this process of how something goes from a conversation to, to a bill is fascinating. But I also think this whole thing that's happening with box turtles that just there's no real way to know about it unless you're talking to someone who understands what's happening you know exactly in that area i would have never had the slightest clue that this was going on yeah i would i wouldn't have i wouldn't have either and to think that you know yeah that, that there's a market somewhere else for for a box turtle in kansas that we kind of take for granted right because we've seen them around you know based on my experience as a kid i would have thought that the I gladly ship out snapping turtles. I didn't like snapping turtles very much as a kid, but exactly. <laughs> they can go high. But it turns out nobody wants a snapping turtle. Right? No, no. There's no market for snappers, I don't think. No. Now tell me <laughs> how long when when did you come into the legislature? Uh, I was uh, I filed in 2016, June first, uh, for a seat that uh, a representative, my representative, was had announced her retirement, and then two weeks later she came, and I filed, and then two weeks later she came uh, to me and said, "I'm going to resign because I have some health issues." And so she was, she resigned, and then I was appointed by the precinct committee men, committee women, to take her place and fill out her term. And then in that November, I had an opponent, uh, and I ran against the one. So, uh, so I actually, I started in June 16, 2016, and then elected in November, and then started the session in 2017. Okay. And then 
you, you had told me too that years before you worked about 30 years for Southwestern Bell or what later became uh, AT&T. Yes, yes. Um, can you, what kind of work did you do for them? Oh, I did various, <laughs> various jobs. I, I started, I was one of the first of two, there were two of us that started in Topeka, Kansas in 1972 as male telephone operators. That was after affirmative action had passed and, you know, businesses, companies were, were really forced to hire folks in non-traditional jobs. Mm -hmm. And an operator was a very non-traditional job for, uh, for a male. Yeah. And so we, uh, myself and another fellow who ended up working for Bell uh, for about 30 years also, we were the first two male telephone operators in the state of Kansas. How, now, what was that job like? What, what, it, it what was did you interesting. do? Uh, I, I sat at a cord board uh, with all these cords in front of me. And, and literally plugged and in. And plugged in. I made long-distance calls for people, credit card calls. Uh, everything went through. Basically, back then, there was no really direct dial. You, you, you know, to go long distance, you had to call the operator. And, and then that would, they would connect you to another system right. somewhere else. Well, to get, yeah, uh, circuits or uh -huh. that would go to another location. And then that location would route the call uh, to its final termination place. So. I, I'd never even thought, I mean, I'm old enough to know when it, when it costs to call long distance. We didn't, we lived in a small town and, and ca even calling to Hutchinson was a big oh, yeah, deal. Yeah. Cause you didn't want to pay If you were in that. a dialing area or a, what was it called? I forget what they, metropolitan dialing area mm -hmm. like Wichita, you know, they, they could call different cities could call one another because it was part of a metropolitan calling scope or something, but everybody else had to pay. It was long distance. Yeah. But the most fun was having coins, you know, having a call from a coin phone. Oh yeah. And you would, you would literally on a piece of paper, you would count the dings, the dongs and the, because every coin had a distinct tone. So if you put in a nickel, it would make one tone, a dime would make a different tone, and a quarter would make another tone. So you'd make the marks. So we'd mark cents, you know, to make sure they had put in their $2.25 for the, the first long three minutes. Call. Oh, wow. It was crazy. But <laughs> did that for uh, over two years when I started, and I was going to Washburn University, try trying to get a business degree. And uh, I think I was short three hours and I got an opportunity to go to Hayes, Kansas as on a promotion. And so I went there and then went to various places. In fact, when I was in Hayes, Kansas, I, uh, I had all basically responsible for all the central offices that switched all your calls. Okay. And, uh, in fact, uh, Hutchinson was one of the offices that territory I would go down to, okay. I was responsible for. And I'll never forget going to Nickerson. That's where I grew up. Well, yeah. I, I was probably there when you were <laughs> growing up. And uh, 
it was it was quite interesting. But uh, yeah, got to go to a lot of smaller towns, uh, travel. Uh, but from that point on, I I had various different engineering jobs, uh, external affairs, lobbying jobs. Ended up as vice president of external affairs when I retired. And then you said you had you did retire for a couple of years and did played a lot of golf and and did a little bit of nothing and that was a window you had before you ended up back ended up in the legislature right, right? Yeah. exactly now years before you you were in the marine corps you said the marine corps for 3 years right 3 years served in vietnam yes, yes. and you're a purple heart recipient yes do you do you can i ask you about that well that might take a while but no uh i you know i went into i was 17 years old not the best student in the world, uh, liked to party too much, and uh, saw a Marine come out and do their recruiting speech in dress blues and said, that's what I want to do. I want to wear that dress blues. Uh, and uh, I was 17, so I went home, told my mother and father, and they had to sign the waiver mm-hmm. because I was underage, and they did. and. Uh, so I actually joined in March of 1966 okay. and then went on, in on active duty in July of that year and then spent three years. I was a combat engineer, so I, uh, I wherever the infantry went, I went along also. Uh, you know, I went to school on how to handle explosives and blow uh if they needed something blowing up, they would call on me. Or uh, actually, we even went to school to uh, uh, dismantle uh, landmines okay. and uh, you know different things like that that people might step on Marines. Uh, but you know, I got pretty smart. Uh, just put down a grenade and run like hell and let it blow the <laughs> landmine up. Uh, that was the quickest way to take care of it. But yeah, I, I spent uh, three years, went to Vietnam when I was 18. Um, only spent two months there because I was shot in the foot. Hmm. And it was bad enough where they had uh, sent me back to the States. Okay. You can't tell it now. You, you don't... I. I don't see you walk difficulty with any difficulty or anything. You know, like I've that. been real lucky. They they did a great job, and uh, I do receive twenty percent disability uh, for my injury. But when the weather's nice out, it's very very good. It gives me no problem. Even at the hint of the weather changing, uh, I must have arthritis in it, and I can feel it. Yeah. But overall. Uh, and, and overall, I will just say that, you know, when, when a young man is trying to figure out what he wants to do in his life, uh, I know for myself, I made the smartest decision of joining the armed forces. Yeah, it kind of gave you, I mean, like you said, you saw somebody and you said, that's what I want. It gave you some direction, I guess. Or, direction and made me really grow up very quickly. Yeah, I imagine it would. <laughs> it Going through Marine Corps boot camp will do that to you. Yeah, I bet, I bet that does. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, trying to think 
what else I want to make sure and cover with you here, and I, I, and I, I need to say, um, well, thanks for your service. I need to say that. Oh, uh, make sure. And, you're welcome. Um, we, we haven't been able to talk you know, too in-depth about that, and I know you could talk a lot more. But it's interesting to hear your job as a combat engineer. It sounds like you're, you're, you're basically clearing, clearing out whatever they didn't want. Right. Right. If there was something in in infantry's way, you're you were the guy that came well, in. Well, yeah. If they uh, if they saw a bland mine or a mine or uh, they call them bouncing beddies that you step on them, they come up three feet and then explode. Mm-hmm. You know, we uh, we knew how we were taught how to uh, disengage those uh, manually. But uh, as I said, it was easier just to blow them in place. But probably one of the funniest stories back in Nam was uh, we went into a village and we, uh, the infantry uh, did find some caches of underground, basically hidden uh, of uh, food, Mm -hmm. rice that we believe and we're pretty sure the enemy were storing uh, there. So the the commander called for engineers up, you know, to have us come up. And he said, look, you've got to blow this in place. Uh, And I looked at my friend and I said, you know, there's a specific calculation you have to go through on how many blocks of C4 that you should put in this (laughs) hole. And we sort of looked at one another and, you know, just shrugged our shoulders and said, I think three will do. <laughs> so we uh, we put three uh, blocks of C4 in this and blasting caps and ran it uh, oh, far away. And there's you have to give, let everybody know, of course, fire in the hole. You have to say it three times, even in Vietnam. Yeah. You, that's, that's, you have to follow those, those guidelines. And uh, we hit the switch, blew this crater up, and uh, I think it rained uh, rice uh, for miles. I mean, <laughs> we, I think we blew this rice up into the stratosphere, and uh, the uh, commanding officer just looked at us and shook his head. You know, after all this rice was coming down. Because it wasn't a, he knew you didn't, it wasn't a precision calculation. It wasn't a precision calculation, <laughs> correct. <laughs> well, looking at the session coming up, talk to me a little bit about what you, I mean, we have a lot going on, a lot of moving pieces, a lot of big issues this year. Um, but aside from the box turtle, uh, what do you hope to, to see come out of this session? Well, number one, I hope this everybody, I'm sure knows if they don't, it's redistricting. Uh, every 10 years we get to do this based upon the census data. And as you know, you're on that committee that now we're getting into the stage of, we've had the public input stage. Mm-hmm. Now we're getting to sit down and you all, the committee are gonna start looking at maps and, and we'll draw from the congressional maps uh, on down to uh, the Senate maps to the House maps. Yeah. And so that's, that is going to be a real a project to say the least. Yeah. And there's going to be a lot of disagreement uh, because there's going to be some gerrymandering attempts 
and we have to uh, not allow that. Yeah. Uh, so that's going to be an interesting process. Ten years ago, it went to the courts uh, because legislature couldn't make couldn't a get decision, it couldn't yeah. get it done. And who knows? It might end up in the courts this year again. But from that standpoint, you know, we have, uh, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on tax issues uh, as the ranking minority on tax and, uh, you know, really promoting the governor's elimination of sales tax on food yep. uh, and also the rebate program that she has uh, brought forward. And there might be other issues that uh, us as, as Democrats can put more money into people's pockets out there. That's, uh, I know you would love to do that, yep. and so would I. So we'll, we'll see how this progresses, but I'm going to be very busy on those issues. I know you will, and it's going to be an interesting year, I suspect. It will Notwithstanding the ornate box turtle. I'd like to get the ornate box turtle done uh, about the same time as the governor wants to get the uh, sales tax on food, state sales tax on food, by Kansas State. Oh, those that, would that both would, be nice. Those Kansas would State. be nice presents for Kansas State to for everyone. I think so too. Yeah, we need to shoot for that. Yeah, that'd be good. Well, Jim, thanks for coming on today and talking with me a little bit about the ornate the box turtle and and about some of your your history and experience. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Jason, for everything. All right, thanks, Jim. I'd like to thank a few of the people who've helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son, Mitchell Probst, wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigett put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast and Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast and Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. A Salt City Sound production.